Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you this week back in our study in Philippians. As our elder Larry just mentioned, we are covering verses 14 through 18 of Philippians chapter 2, which comes as the conclusion to a conversation that Paul began all the way back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, where he instructed us as believers to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And these last number of weeks, we've looked at what that's meant according to Paul and how that requires an understanding of Christ and how that requires also an understanding of the community in which we live. And this is an aspect of the Christian life oftentimes we can overlook. We live in a culture in which, as Christians, we regularly use athletic imagery, and for good reasons, to discuss what it means to run a life or run a race worthy of the gospel. But sadly, at times, we reduce that to some individualistic calling. We fail to understand that to run properly requires you run in community. This is something we can miss. It's something that I learned firsthand, at least now in a logical way, back a number of years ago when my wife and I decided to run in a marathon together. This was before kids. I looked a little better than I do now, uh, health-wise. Um, but we decided we wanted to run a race together. And throughout the course of training and on race day, there were numerous surprises that came up. Most of those surprises, as you can imagine, were not the good kind of surprises. Um, I, I very much underestimated how much effort it would take. I underestimated how much just one wrong step when running can cause just a slight injury that can set you back for weeks on end. But there were also some positive surprises, namely on race day. And one of the greatest surprises that came on race day was the amazing amount of encouragement that came from that community of runners. Whether that was from the people running the, the event, people checking you in registration, people that were working the water stations and encouraging you along the way, or even if it was your fellow runners. Individuals who paid just as, money as you, just as much money as you did to be there. Individuals who also tra- trained for months on end to be there. And yet individuals who on race day seemed to care just as much about my success as they did their success. One such runner was a gentleman who came across my path around mile 19. Um, around mile 19, well before mile 19, and I was struggling a great deal. I was annoyed because I wasn't going as fast as I wanted to. Uh, I was hurting much more than I had planned on hurting at that point in time. And this older gentleman could clearly see that. And instead of running past me, this gentleman instead slowed down and even stopped next to me on the roadside, asked me if I was okay, asked me if I needed assistance, and he very quickly learned that this was my first marathon. And so he said, in order to help me finish he would go ahead and slow down and run with me for the last seven miles. He would set a pace that was doable for me, but also that would encourage me, that would help me cross the finish line. He would fill our time telling me stories about his own running to try to distract me, to try to allow me to think less of my pain. And he did it all, of course, while sacrificing his own finishing time. In fact, when we came to the finish line, this older gentleman even pulled back a little so that he could, as as he said, make it look like I was really beating him badly at the end of the race. (laughs) Why would he do that? Why would so many people sacrifice their own joy, their own personal achievement, to help their fellow runners? Well, the reason for that, of course, was that on that race day, none of those people saw me as a competitor, for good reason. (laughs) They saw me as themselves. They saw me as wanting to do the exact same thing they were there to do. And so for them, helping me was a way of helping themselves. Helping other runners was a way of helping their community. 
because they understood they too had been through the exact same amount of pain. They too had been through the same amount of rigorous training and they too had that same finish line in mind as their ultimate goal. Well, Christians, far too often in times in our life, I think we fail to understand that in our own Christian walk. We think of our walk as a race as if God's calling to us is to leave our brothers and sisters in the dust, but it is far from that. No, as we see in Philippians chapter 2, to run the race in a way pleasing to God requires that we avoid the tendencies we can fall into, that tendency to distract others, to trip others up. That race requires us to understand the tremendous opportunity given to us, not just to run ourselves, but to be a guide for those around us. And to run well requires us also understand and experience the joy of what it means, not just to cross the line as individuals, but to share that finish line with multitudes of brothers and sisters in Christ who are aiming for the same conclusion and are headed to the same home as you and I. And so the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning, believers, is not are you running the race effectively, but are we as Cape Bible Chapel? Are we doing it as we are called to do it? With that being said, let me again pray for us and we'll talk through this distraction. We'll talk through what this race must look like for us. Bow in your heads and pray with me again as we begin our time. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for all that has already happened, the encouragement we have received God, what a glorious morning it is and already a great reminder of the fact that we are in, in this all together, God. We've, in, in, we've enjoyed that reminder and the family breakfast we've experienced this morning. We've enjoyed that reminder as we sing songs of worship to you. We've enjoyed that reminder as we see our dear sister Karis step forward in baptism, God. And what a glorious picture it all is, God. And so as we finish our time this morning by reading your word, I pray, God, that we might strive to run this race in a way truly glorifying to you. In order to do that, God, I pray that we might understand the role we play in this community. And as we do so, God, might we rise to the occasion you've put before us, might we shine like stars, and might we find greater joy in the success of others than we do in our own. Jesus, remove all distractions from us during this time. Remove pride from us, God. For those here who do not yet know you, God, we pray for their salvation so they too may join us in this race, so they too may join us at the finish line. Might our brothers and sisters in Christ be encouraged this morning. Might you be glorified above all else, God. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. As we mentioned from the outset, in the midst of running any given race, it's important to understand what obstacles stand in your way. If you're training for any athletic event, it's essential that you understand the things you must avoid doing so as to avoid injury. Unsurprisingly, then, as Paul speaks to these Philippian believers and comes to this very practical conclusion of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, he begins with perhaps the most common obstacle of all, and arguably the deadliest of all. It is this obstacle, this tendency that he warns against when he writes, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now this, this command seems a bit strange when you first read it. And the reason why I say it sounds strange is in light of how well the Philippian believers appear to be doing. I mean, up to this point in time, we, we've seen Paul do nothing but really encourage them, speak to how great of service they've already provided. So why, in the midst of all that encouragement, 
Why, in the midst of speaking to the need of living a life worthy of the gospel, would Paul pick out these very specific sins that they must be certain to kill? The reason for that is because Paul understands, regardless of how mature you are, these sins of grumbling, of disputing, are ancient sins that plague every generation of believers. They're far from unique to the Philippians. And in fact, in this verse, as well as the later verses, we see Paul uses this language specifically because it comes to us from a story in the Old Testament, a story that is so important for us all to know. It's the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And if you were to look back at the story of that wandering, you would see time and time again how those Israelites in between Egypt and the Promised Land continue to fall into this trap that Paul is warning his readers about. This sin of grumbling and complaining, the sin of grumbling and disputing or arguing. And so as to make sure we understand exactly what the sin is, I want you to turn back with me, if you will, back to the book of Numbers. In book of Numbers, chapter 14, we see one of the many examples of this type of grumbling, and it's a passage that is particularly helpful as it not only details what grumbling and and, and arguing looks like, but also reminds us how serious of a sin this is. Numbers chapter 14, we see a scene that is quite familiar within this story. I'll read verses 1 through 4. There we read these words. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. This cry from the people is following a very famous story earlier in Numbers when the spies have already been sent out to the promised land and nearly all the spies come back with what report? Well, they say that the promised land's full of giants. There's no way we can overtake them. And so they come back, and many of the people then assume that all this wandering in the wilderness has been for absolutely nothing, for now they're just left simply to die by the sword. In the midst of their disappointment and their frustration, we see that they grumble, they complain. And what specifically characterizes their grumbling? What exactly are they saying? Well, like so many other passages like this, their grumbling is not directed initially against God so much as it's directed against Moses. It's directed against Aaron. And what is the people's complaint against Moses and Aaron? Well, it's that they've failed them. They've hatched some awful plan to drag them out of their precious home in Egypt, of course, where they were enslaved, and bring them to a place that they claim is just going to be far worse How dare they do this? And in response to that grumbling, you see these sons of Israel, these leaders, grumbling in a way to cause division. And as they do this, they stir up support for their cause. And suddenly, you have crowds crying out against Moses and Aaron, questioning their wisdom, and in so doing, questioning the wisdom and goodness of God. It's a pretty serious offense. And if not for the fact that this was not the first time, one might think that, God perhaps would give them a pass, but we see God takes this sin very, very seriously. For after initially declaring that he would kill them all there, 
and just make Moses into a great nation. We come to the end of that story in Numbers chapter 14 and find this conclusion in verse 20. There we, we read, the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word, that is the word of Moses, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Feel the weight of that punishment. These individuals have come all the way through the wilderness. They have escaped slavery in Egypt. They have seen the plagues that God struck Egypt with. They have gone through the Red Sea. They have seen miracle upon miracles. But since they failed this test, God says they will now all die in the wilderness. They will not see the promised land. Why? Because of grumbling. Because of causing division amongst the body. Because of causing this ceaseless argument, which in turn meant they failed their mission. And as the story progresses, you understand that's exactly what happens. The bodies of the Israelites are strewn across the wilderness. And no one in this generation, except for those righteous spies, those faithful spies who supported God, who supported his leaders, well, none of them make it. It's a harsh story, nonetheless. And it's a story that would cause many of us to think, well, goodness gracious, I'm glad I'm no Israel trapped in the wilderness. I would hate to be so foolish as to, to commit such a, a grievous error as grumbling and complaining. And yet, of course, as we jump to the New Testament, we see that this is not just a sin that remained in the wilderness, was it? For the same language is picked up not just by Paul, but, but numerous New Testament authors. The same sin is carried over and just takes on different forms. For while New Testament believers did not have a Moses figure to complain about, they certainly had the apostles. So they grumbled against those leaders. In the book of Acts, in passages like Acts chapter 6, you have the same type of language described, uh, describing the relationship between believers with Jewish background and Gentile backgrounds. And so they are, they are grumbling against each other. They are picking fights with one another. They are griping about one another, thereby causing dissension. You jump ahead to passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there Paul, as I think he is doing here in Philippians, takes the imagery of Israelites in the wilderness and he says, hey, that's a bad story, but that story is for our example, for us to follow so that we would not be guilty of those same sins, Corinthians. And so Paul uses that same story to warn against sexual immorality, to warn against idolatry, and to warn against grumbling. And yet again, as we already saw in Philippians chapter 2, the sin is not just reserved for the Israelites, nor is it reserved for that first church in Acts, nor is it reserved for, let's face it, churches that were struggling mightily like in Corinth. It's even a sin that seems to be taking root in Philippi, the great Philippian church, a church that, as we've seen, is doing great things. So why would this heinous sin be a concern for Paul there? Well, the concern, of course, comes from the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that this remains our tendency. In the midst of our struggling, we naturally begin to pick fights with one another. We begin assuming that we know better than our brothers or sisters. We complain against our leaders, whether that be our pastors, teachers, whatever they are. We assume they don't know better. We do. In response, we build up support around us. We say, hey, you agree with me, and you agree with me. 
We must be right. And in the process, we cause division in the body. We do so thinking that we are righteous in this, but we are far from it. And Paul can sense that this unrighteous, wicked act perhaps is beginning to take root in Philippi, and commentators debate as to what this exactly meant. And while Paul does not go into great detail here, I think he gives us a clue of what that was looking like later on in the book. For as Pastor Josh has already referenced, and as we'll see later on in our study, you have in Philippians chapter 4 this calling out to Yodi and Syntyche, these two individuals in the church who are debating with one another. And I think many commentators rightly point to this perhaps as the example of this division that is beginning to, to, be, to grow within the Philippian community. For you have two individuals that perhaps are building up their own factions, two individuals whose animosity towards each other is becoming well known. And in the process of doing so, these Philippian believers who are far from that desert near Sinai are finding themselves in an eerily similar situation where they too have been given this calling to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel on their own way to God's spiritual kingdom, and there's risk of falling short. And the stumbling block is not the world around them, it's not Roman persecution, it's themselves. And Paul's concerned that they make it to the end. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if, if that tendency was in the lives of these Philippian believers, it was in the lives of those Israelites and the lives of the Corinthians Surely we must be humble enough to acknowledge that it's a tendency still in our culture today, is it not? I mean, I don't know how much news you watch, how much time you spend on social media, but neither of those things are really full of people complimenting each other or saying, hey, look what this person did. Isn't that nice? No, it's all full of griping, constant griping, constant grumbling, constant complaining. Constantly questioning the person you disagree with, assuming you know better. And we as Christians, as we subsist on this diet of cynicism, fail to see how it begins to, to corrupt our own relationships with each other. And suddenly we become so infected with that cynicism of the world that it, it changes the way we see each other. And suddenly we begin viewing each other as, again, chief competitors. As if my brother and sister in Christ who disagree with me on this topic, well, they are my competitor and I must defeat them. As if I am in this race all alone. And as if my calling then is to build up my own faction to prove my own self-righteousness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be so careful of this. We must be so careful for we must recognize that the danger is not that we cause ourselves to trip up. That's bad enough. The danger is that you might be a stumbling block to another believer. The danger is that by, by complaining to some brother or sister in Christ, you may actually be actively hindering them from walking in a manner worthy of God. And God takes that very, very seriously. And Paul understands this. And he knows that as glorious as the example of the Philippian believers is, they haven't made it to the promised land yet. And if they want to make it, if we want to make it, we have to overcome that tendency, a tendency to trip ourselves up, to needlessly critique and argue, complain. And we must avoid this distraction so as to make sure that we do not miss, not just the race set before us, but we do not miss the unbelievably beautiful opportunity that God has put before us. 
It is that opportunity to which Paul next speaks and that opportunity that is our second point. For having discussed this need to kill off all grumbling and disputing of whispering complaints against one another, Paul tells us what will happen as a result. Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That last imagery is so beautiful and we'll get to what that means, what that looks like. But in order to understand what it takes to to grasp this opportunity, in order to ensure that we get to the point where we are shining, we must not miss what Paul says we must first become. For Paul says, if we avoid this grumbling and disputing, if we maintain this proper character, we will prove ourselves to be children of God, innocent and blameless, above reproach. Now this picture has elements that are both already true and yet not quite true. It is already true that all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are children of God. That is true of everyone in this community. We are, if we've placed our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, brothers and sisters, we are God's children. As we already saw, Karis Bollinger earlier gave us a beautiful example of this. A beautiful example of the simplicity of that gospel. A simplicity that oftentimes I think we, we overcomplicate, we miss out. But the beauty of that is the fact that regardless of your age, be you 8 or 80, anywhere in between, or even younger or older, the Bible promises you that if you simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you are saved, dear believer. That is precious. And we must not ever underestimate how beautifully precious, how beautifully encouraging that is. We must always remember that is our identity, that is our community. And yet, believer, we, must not all, we also must not overestimate that fact. That is to say, we must not also assume that we've somehow made it. That God calls us into salvation and then our life is just simply to live however we please. No, there's a higher calling still. That calling, in essence, is to finally embody the name that God has placed upon you. To become that mature child of God, a maturity that is marked, as Paul says here, with blamelessness, with innocence, a character that is above reproach. This is what the community is supposed to become. Growing up as a believer, these words, I think, oftentimes were misunderstood by me. For oftentimes when I heard anyone preach on the need to be blameless and innocent or to maintain purity, again, I I turned it into this imagery of of self-reliance. This idea of spiritual self-discipline where I just made sure my thoughts were better, they were cleaner, they were blameless, they were pure. I wanted to make sure that I myself as an individual was stronger, more mature, and in my mind, being mature meant an increasing reality of, of autonomy. Meaning the more mature I got as a believer, the the less I thought I needed other believers. That was the goal I always had in mind. And I would use language like like this to prove that. But again, based off of everything we've seen in Philippians so far, and based off of everything Paul writes, we must understand that that individualism, that autonomy, is far from a picture of, of maturity. For even these words 
blameless, innocent, purity, these words have a communal aspect to them. You see, Paul explained that clearly elsewhere when he speaks of his own testimony. If you will, turn over with me a few pages to 1 Thessalonians. For in 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses the same language to describe how he interacts with fellow believers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, as Paul depicts his own ministry, Beginning in verse 7, Paul says this, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother, tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor, our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards believers. Did you catch that? The blamelessness that Paul speaks of is not a blamelessness that these believers could look upon Paul as as he maintains his own spiritual self-disciplines. The blamelessness was observed in interaction with him, in relationships, The language of Philippians, then, is using this language, these words, to describe, again, how we interact with each other in this community. So to be blameless does not simply mean some moral sexual purity. It speaks to speaking to each other, interacting with each other in a way that does not constantly lay blame at each other's feet, does not constantly accuse one another of various faults and wrongs. To be above reproach speaks of this goal to where when the outside world listens in to us, when the outside world observes you and your treatment of your brothers and sisters in Christ, they see a relationship that is undefiled, a relationship that is pure, meaning it is kind, it is strengthening, it is good for that other person. They see a relationship then, a community that is categorically different from anything they see in this world around them. And it is that difference, that kindness, that love that sets us apart. Tragically, for so many believers today and so many communities, that difference has been lost. Tragically, for all of us, there are those times in our life where we have to admit that if an unbeliever were to listen in to the way we were talking about our sister in Christ in this body, that teacher we don't like, they would hear nothing different from what they hear in the world around them. They would hear cynicism. They would hear criticism. They would hear hatred. They would see examples of people grabbing for power at all costs. They would see the type of character we expect in the world around them. And as a result, they would not see a community that is attractive. No, they would see someone who is just as dark, just as hopeless as they are. Oftentimes, we can get caught up in this discussion in our own culture of of asking why the world doesn't listen to us more, and it's a fair question. And oftentimes, we can assume that the world rejects us because the world just wants to walk away and embrace their own forms of immorality, their own rampant sin, whatever it is. They reject us because, well, they hate the gospel. And while that is undoubtedly true at times. Recent research suggests that it's not so straightforward. And as one writer put it a couple years ago in response to the growing number of individuals who no longer claim religion personally, he wrote this, 
where a de-churched or ex-evangelical, that is someone who left the church, in the early 1920s, was likely to have walked away due to the fact that she found the virgin birth or bodily resurrection to be outdated or superstitious, or because he found a, more libertine, a better libertinism to be more attractive than the outmoded strict moral code of the past, or because she wanted to escape stifling bonds of a home church for autonomous individualism, now we see a markedly different and jarring model of the disillusioned evangelical. For instead, we now hear young evangelicals say they walk away, not because they don't believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. The presenting issue in our current secularization is not scientism nor hedonism, but disillusionment. Meaning more and more individuals walking away from the church, when asked, say that their reason for rejecting the faith, again, is, is not for some rampant immorality, although that perhaps is part of it. It's because they don't see any difference between what happens in the church and what happens outside the church. And so why stick around? Oh, Paul's point to the community in Philippi is that cannot be the case, that we must prove ourselves, we must grow into this maturity to be blameless, to be innocent, to be above reproach, so that, in so doing, Paul says, in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation, we will appear as lights in the world. This is the end goal of the community of believers. The goal to truly shine. Paul here sets up this, this clear contrast between what the church should look like and what the world does look like. Describing the world, Paul again depicts it as this dark, this crooked and perverse generation. Paul again here is not using his own language. He's borrowing from that ancient story of the wilderness. For this is exactly how Moses depicts that fallen generation of Israelites. For back in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, Moses on his way out of this earth, frustrated by the failure of his Israelite brethren, says this, they have acted corruptly towards him, that is Israelites towards God, so they are not his children because of their defects, that they are perverse and a crooked generation. Paul uses the language that Moses uses to depict those fallen Israelites in the wilderness and he applies it to the world as a whole. And in so doing, he says something that I trust every single one of us here understands. That we live in a perverse world, in a dark world. And as, as our brother Larry prayed for earlier, if there was any doubt of that, again, the news this week highlighted just how horrifically awful that darkness is. As much as we can get caught up in the political strife and political arguments of this world, events like that which happened in Texas this week remind us just how dark it truly is. How lonely this world is, how scary and terrifying this world is. And how apart from Christ, we live in a world that is wandering around in the darkness, desperately trying to find their way home. It is the job of the church, Paul says. More importantly, the job of the church, as Jesus says, to be the light in that darkness. For Paul says in the midst of that darkness, we as a result of being blameless and mature, we shine like stars in the night sky. 
This imagery speaks of something that is both beautiful, but also incredibly practical. For there is, of course, beauty in the night sky, is there not? Every single one of us, as we go outside and observe the night sky, it is something that I so love about living where we live. Because you can see the stars. It's something that we didn't get to see much in Colorado Springs, certainly nothing I saw in Dallas, Texas growing up. Even though the stars at night are big and bright, supposedly, but you can't see them, that's all their issue. But there's a beauty to seeing those stars, isn't there? It's a reminder of how small we are. It's a reminder how beautiful creation is. And it's a reminder how beautiful we ought to be to this world. But it's also a reminder of, of how necessary and practical the, that starlight was. For we understand that throughout most of human history, stars were not just there for some some beautiful thing to look upon. No, stars were there to do what? To guide the world. To guide those traveling along the seas. To guide those wandering through the wilderness. For centuries upon centuries, mankind looked upon the stars to remind them the route that they were to take home. And Paul beautifully reminds us that this is the opportunity you and I have. That as light amongst the world, our ability is to show them the way. And tragically, again, I think oftentimes that beautiful, that, that practical aspect of the light is lost on so many of us. And we've reduced being a light to, to some obnoxious tool we use to shame the world around us. We walk around with the flashlights and we shine them in the face of unbelievers and we say, Hey, you messed up again. You should be ashamed of yourself. We see the shame flags they participate in and we say, well, they deserve what they get, right? And we walk away smug and self-righteous. And we use our light for our own benefit. Not for the benefit of others, certainly not for anyone to be called home, but rather we use it simply to expose shame and then move on merrily on our own way. Oh, but that is not the point of our light, believers. No, our light is a light that is to be used, of course, to expose sin as we do naturally, but as we expose it, we lovingly are bringing them in. We're showing them, you're on the wrong path. This is the way home. Come, be like us, follow us. We will show you where the finish line is. And again, the question is, believers, are we doing that? Do we understand how precious that opportunity is? Do we understand that like this little church in Philippi, that our light can truly shine far beyond Cape Girardeau, far beyond our geographical boundaries, that we even as an individual church can be used to illuminate the way home for a generation that is hopelessly lost. Do we see that? And do we provide that light? I think we do in part. But I think in the midst of the wilderness that we live in, we can so quickly forget it. We can so quickly forget that calling and that opportunity. And so Paul reminds us this is the job given to us. And, and even attached to that as we move into verse 16, Paul reminds us also the means of doing that. The way we do this, believer, is, verse 16, holding fast the word of life. Here's the way our community shines both as a result of maturing, as being blameless, and doing so all the while while clinging on to the gospel. 
by holding on desperately to that one message that actually can bring light, soaking in its light and being transformed in the process. Commentators debate as to what exactly it means to cling to this light, to cling to this word. Uh, People debate whether this is an evangelistic approach, that is, holding out the word of life, or if this is more of a, a defensive tactic, holding on tightly, grasping it to our chest. While I hate trying to play both sides of the argument, I think both are true. And the reason why I think that is because what Paul writes elsewhere. For consider this language over in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul describes this type of transformation that happens as a result of being transfixed. Beginning in verse 15, Paul writes, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Here I think you see that simultaneous act of beholding the glory of Christ, being transformed by that glory, and then going out into the world and glowing with that beauty of Christ the world around us. We are very much like some celestial light soaking in the light of the sun that is distant from us and reflecting that light to a waiting world. That is your job, believer. Is that, believer, what we are clinging to? Is it this word of life that we are devoted to, that we are being transformed by, or are we seeking to be transformed by lesser lights in this world? Are we so caught up in lesser pursuits of financial success political obsessions, of patriotic obsessions, of whatever you want to call it, that we've turned away from that beauty of Christ, that light of the gospel. Well, if that happens, then believer, we can be certain that we will not shine, that we will regress, that we will fall back, that we will stumble. For it is only the gospel that provides life. It is only Christ that brings that change. And so, believers, we must desperately Avoid getting entangled in the gripe sessions of our culture and strive to be the people that God expects us to be. And when we do this, we will shine. And when we do this, as we come to our final point, we will also experience that joy. And joy not simply of winning a race, but of reaching the finish line with our brothers and sisters, with that growing community. Paul speaks to that ultimate hope In our final words, the the last half of chapter 16 through 18, again we read, so that, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice with me in the same way and share your joy with me. As Paul brings this discussion to a conclusion, as he speaks of what it looks like to live a life, to walk a life in a manner pleasing to the God, he puts himself up as an example. Not a prideful way, but just as a means of showing us what this practically looks like. And as he does so, he speaks of that boast of the hope he has. That hope that as a result of all this work, in the day of judgment, the Philippians will prove that their sacrifice was blameless. It was exactly what God expected, exactly what God commanded. And therefore, Paul, like a proud parent, 
but will they present his child before Christ and say, Christ, look. Look how great they're doing. Look how they've grown up. Isn't it amazing, Christ, to see this? As an apostle, as a pastor, that was Paul's greatest hope, and it's a hope that I think a, a lot of us as parents can relate to, isn't it? We so desperately long to see our kids grow up to be godly young men and women. It's a hope that I think any teacher can relate to as they see their kids grow and learn throughout the school year and they see the finished product. It's not prideful of the teacher to, to take joy in the growth of their student. No, it's, it's that love. It's that appreciation of the job that's been given to them by God. And Paul took that very seriously. Paul wanted nothing more than to prove that he was a faithful servant of Christ. And, and that proof comes in the faithful obedience of these fellow believers. And Paul, in these closing verses, reminds the believers that he's willing to do whatever it takes to see them cross that finish line. To see them make it there. Even, as he says, if it means all of his work is nothing more than a drink offering. One last time, Paul pulls out one of these Old Testament metaphors that we can lose sight of or we can miss the beauty of. But there's such shocking humility in this. Such a beautiful example of selfless service, but that beauty can only be understood if you appreciate what a drink offering was. For while we do not have time to, to go into great detail of that, if, if you look back to passages like Numbers chapter 28, You'll see things like drink sacrifices that are commanded. But as you read of these drink sacrifices, you quickly understand that they are far from the main part of the show. The main part of the show is the greater sacrifice, the more important sacrifice. You think of, of the lamb, you think of the goat, you think of the animal that is, that is slain for God's glory. But at the end of that sacrifice, we read this. Then, after all that's happened, then the drink offering with it shall be a fourth of hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering, a strong drink to the Lord. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, the grain offering of morning. As its drink offering you shall offer it, an offering of fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Here's the picture. After you, Israelite, have gone through all the trouble of, of gathering your sacrifice together, of ensuring that you followed the law, after it's been slaughtered according to that law, after it's been put before God as a finishing touch, you add this drink offering which causes the aroma of the sacrifice to be lifted up to God as a pleasing sacrifice. Paul is saying that even if all of his tears, all of his sweat, all of the ink poured out for the Philippians, even if that is just the final touch, that allows the already pleasing sacrifice of the Philippians to be that much better in the, in the nostrils of God, well, what's worth it for Paul? And even if that requires him to die, he's happy to do it. Why? Because he knows it is at that point in time they've reached the end. And so there's no greater joy for joy. There's no greater cause for joy, no greater cause for celebration. And so he says, I rejoice in this, and you too, Philippians, he says, join me. Understand that this is not a race between you. Your goal is not to beat your brother in Christ to prove yourself better. No, your goal is to bring your brother along. To see him when he is suffering and saying, you know what, I'll, I'll come along beside you. I'll do whatever you need me to do. 
Your goal is not to shine light on the world and speak of them as if they are shameful, hideous creatures. Your goal is to run in a way that causes them to look upon you as a beautiful star in the night sky so that you can say, come along with me, world, and I will show you grace. I will show you love that you could never enjoy or experience on this world. I will show you Christ, and you too can live with him for all eternity. If you just follow us, if you just come alongside. Brothers and sisters, that is our high calling. It is a calling that is difficult at times. For it's a calling that still takes place in the wilderness. It's a calling that does not ignore the realities of, of struggles we will have with each other. For there are struggles. I will struggle with you at times when you do things. I am sure, hypothetically speaking, some of you might struggle with me. I can't imagine how, but I'm, I'm sure it happens. Those struggles happen, believers, but amidst that struggle, remember, we're all in the same path together. We're headed in the right place. And so as we close today, unbelievers, my call to you, I pray you see, is not a call that that declares my own self-righteousness, for I am far from it on my own. I fail in mighty, significant ways. But my call to you is that as you see the flickering light of this community, you might be pointed to the far greater, infinite, glorious light of Jesus Christ. And that in seeing that beauty, you might repent and believe and find your way home. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all in this race together. We are all headed in the promised land, but our job's not done yet. And so let us take seriously the sin of grumbling. Let us call each other out when we hear each other doing it. Let us be humble enough to repent of it when we are confronted. Let us daily grasp onto that gospel, cling to that gospel, and as we do so, let us as a community be so transfixed by the beauty of the gospel, by the glory of God, that we, as a result, shine like stars. And so doing, let us fulfill our calling. Let us reach the end goal together. Let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. And we thank you for this beautiful reminder of what it means to walk in a manner pleasing to you, God. We do not deserve this opportunity. For we are far from stars in the night sky. God, we are prone to stumble and fall in the dust like every other man, woman, and child around us. Yet, God, you have raised us to a new life. And so, God, might we be reminded of that daily through your word and through the relationships we carry on with our brothers and sisters in Christ, might we see that as beautiful. And as a result, God, might we strive to be mature through the working of your spirit, to be blameless in our interactions with each other. Might you grow us up to cause us to shine in the night sky of southeast Missouri and the night sky of the world in which we live. And God, might use us to guide many more home and use us to assist our brothers and sisters along the way. There's no greater joy than that, God. We love you so much. Bless the time now as we have to close with our brothers and sisters, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.